Hebrews 13. Next week we'll begin a new series in the book of Philippians. But this morning we'll have a standalone sermon um, focusing on church leadership. Um, And we'll look one more time at that topic um, in Hebrews 13. Authority is a difficult subject today. I don't think I have to tell you that. I think we all feel that in one way or another in our lives. You can even say it has recently fallen on even harder times. More and more people are distrustful of government authority. They perhaps have good reasons to feel misled, even lied to. Many mistrust the various government agencies and institutions. Those seem to have veered from their purpose of serving the people to whom they're to be responsible. Churches and pastoral leadership has taken its fair share of criticism in the public court of opinion. And again, for very good reasons. One of the most popular podcasts in the last few years focused on the misuse of pastoral authority by a nationally known pastor. Two very popular documentary, documentary style reality series have focused on the downfall and misuse of authority in the church in recent months. The well-publicized scandals of spiritual leaders are a mighty weapon in the hand of our enemy. He uses them to discourage and confuse and hide the truth. Now, while several of these stories are reported in sensational ways, the very real and unfortunate truth is that these leaders deserve blame, at least to some degree, and have caused great harm to the cause of Christ. And yet, as we saw with David in the book of 2 Samuel, there's hope of forgiveness and the restoration of a personal relationship with Christ, no matter what sin has been committed. I'm not making the point here at this time about their restoration to public ministry in any way. I don't believe that I have the right or responsibility to answer a matter that I haven't heard or understand very well. But the point is that our current climate encourages, it encourages, it promotes a mistrust of authority of all kinds. At the root of this issue is the reality that God-designed, God-ordained authority has been under attack by the evil one since Satan came to Eve and questioned God's authority in the garden. This has long been the strategy of the accuser. Greg Gilbert explains that this has been his plan all along in his book, Who is Jesus?, that we read together this summer. There in that garden, Satan is seeking to undermine and discredit God. And he does so by attacking all the different levels of authority that God has set up. So how are we to combat that kind of attack on authority in the church today? What is God's plan for our growth and endurance in the faith? Now, as I was planning the preaching schedule several months ago... And discussing it with the other pastors, we agreed that it'd be helpful to look one more time at the discussion of church leadership. We've considered the need for plural elders over the last several years. We've looked at several different passages, including 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 3, Acts 20, and Titus 1. 
From those passages, we considered why we should move toward plural eldership. We looked at the pattern that's been shown again and again in those texts. This morning, we'll consider in Hebrews 13 how the leaders and the congregation are to work together for God's glory. So we're not making so much the case that we need plural elders. What we're doing is as we move forward, we need to be thinking, how are we to work together? How does the Bible describe that? So let's look at the three passages, the three verses in chapter 13, where this word leaders, plural leaders, is used. We'll start, look down at verse 7 first. Hebrews 13 and verse 7. It says there, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Skip down to verse 17. This will be our text this morning. And God's word says to us again, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then finally, look down at verse 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Let's ask for his help as we consider this topic together this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it works, how it directs, how it instructs us. Lord, here before us we have instruction that may be uh, difficult to us in our natural minds, in our western minds. We are individualistic people. And yet, Lord, you have called us to live in a way that would honor you. You've designed for the church to function in a certain way. Help us to clear away the noise of bad leadership and bad uses of authority. And recognize the good you've designed for us within the church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text teaches us this morning that God's people should gladly submit to their godly, accountable, joyful leaders in the church. We'll see all of those adjectives worked out here in this text this morning. God's people should gladly submit to their godly, accountable, joyful leaders. This morning, we'll we'll focus on the two parties addressed here in chapter 13, verse 17, with three sub-points for each. First, the leaders who lead. Now, it's true that this passage does not tell us directly that the leaders mentioned here in chapter 13 are the elders of the church. But I think, without much persuasion, we can conclude that that is at least, at least part of who he's talking about, based on how they're serving in the church and what their responsibilities are. We just saw in verse 7, they're speaking the word of God. They're teaching and preaching the truth. Notice from verse uh, 17, or 7 as well, they're also functioning as models of godliness to be imitated, to be followed. And in verse 17, they're watching over the souls of those that are part of this church family to whom this letter is written. They're functioning in a pastoral role. Now, what are they doing, these leaders who lead? First, we see their watchfulness. The word watchfulness here signifies vigilance. It's an intense word. Picture in your mind a soldier on guard duty. He's on high alert knowing that an attack might be imminent. 
This is somebody on the front lines, not somebody at home preparing. There's nothing at stake in his guard duty. Imagine a shepherd who's tending his flock on a grassy hillside at night. He's especially attentive if he can hear the howling of a coyote or worse, an entire pack of wolves. He will go without sleep, straining to hear any hint of an attack to protect the flock he's in charge of. That's the idea of watchfulness. In the Greek, it even means to go without sleep. Take note of what the spiritual leaders are to be watchful over as well. They are watching over the souls of the congregation. That is incredibly significant, is it not? They're watching over souls. They're not money managers. They're not property managers. They're not primarily interested in setting up programs within the institution. They are focused on soul care. Now this fits well into the focus of Hebrews. The thrust of the entire book is to encourage and challenge the church, God's people, believers, to persevere through doubts and persecution and hardship. To be prepared for the next life by keeping their gaze fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. And we're told over and over and over in that book, you need help to do this. To that end, elders oversee the spiritual life of each member of a congregation. Listen to Paul's similar instructions to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. See how synonymous this is with what we've heard in Hebrews 13. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care. That seems similar to watching for souls. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's why he said, pay careful attention. He continues, and from among your own selves, from within will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, to lead them astray, to deceive them. So he concludes in verse 31, therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day. There's that watchfulness to admonish everyone with tears. What's at stake for the leaders of the church, the spiritual leaders, the elders? Well, we saw that in our study of the book of Titus. Paul wrote there in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers who must be silenced. Because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Therefore, spiritual leaders of the church must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. They are watchmen of the faith of the believers in the church. God's precious blood-bought church. Paul tells elders to be on guard against those whose teachings distract and unify, disunify rather. Uh, Titus 3, 9 through 11 says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. They protect against disunity and division. In 3 John, we're warned of those who want a following to feed their own pride. In the pastoral epistles, teachers arise who are seeking influence in order to fill their own pockets. They'll fleece the sheep. The elders of the church then are to intentionally keep their focus on the spiritual development of the body's spiritual health. So here's one important application of this verse. You need to be committed to a local body of believers in order to receive this kind of watch care. In order to receive this oversight, your leaders need to know who they're responsible to watch, whose souls they're caring for, and you need to know who you're to follow. If you're not a committed member of a church, how are your leaders supposed to obey this command in your life? If your favorite preacher is some uh, podcast preacher, that's, that's a wonderful blessing we have today. But how can he watch over your soul from afar? That's not possible. This is meant to be worked out in local bodies of believers. You need to know them and they need to know you. Notice as well the seriousness of these commands, of this instruction. Consider, just, just think for a moment what it means to watch after a soul. I was thinking about it this week. Is anyone else in the Bible told something of this magnitude? Your responsibility is to watch after souls. That's a high calling, isn't it? That's a sobering calling. That's why the requirements for an elder are both not extraordinary and meant to be highlighting those that are mature. This is what we're all aspiring to. But the most mature among us are the ones responsible to do that. It says that they will give an account to God himself. Again, Acts 20, 28, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves to care for the church of God. This is not your organization. This is God's church. And then just so that we don't miss it, he says, which he obtained, which he purchased, which he bought, which he gathered through the means of his own blood. Do you see how that guards against an authority, a spiritual leader in the church saying, I can do whatever I'd like. I can lead wherever I want to lead. I can treat the members of the body however I'd like to treat them. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, again, we heard that read where Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight as God would have you. There again, there's that accountability. According to these texts, who are these men truly serving? To whom will they give an account? Whose sheep are they? Should godly leaders be able to read these verses and not tremble with the weight of such a task? Should our church family then not pray and support and encourage these men in such monumental spiritual responsibilities? When you see this laid out text after text, who, who is able to do this task in their own strength? 
Who's worthy of such responsibilities? This church, our church, is no mere human organization. To be an elder is no mere human responsibility. It is a sobering and solemn duty before the living God who judges the living and the dead. So we must take this with this kind of seriousness. You must, as a congregation, think of the great weight your elders, your pastors are bearing for your sake and pray for them. And you should pray that your elders understand the great weight and responsibility they bear before God for your sakes. Thirdly, joyfulness. The last section of this verse tells us that elders are supposed to be able to watch for the souls of the church family with joy and not with groaning. Now, why do you think he had to put that in there? It seems like he's been in church ministry a little while, doesn't it? He understands what this is like. One author states, the onerous work of leadership is made joyful when carried out in an atmosphere of trust and cooperation. By contrast, leaders groan as though under a heavy burden if these attitudes are lacking. In fact, if the members behaved in a way that was burdensome for their leaders, it would be of no benefit, of no help, of no advantage to the congregation, which is an intentional understatement. Since the consequences of unfaithfulness are alarming. The warning in Hebrews is that if you don't follow God's commands, you have to deal with him. And it says our God is a consuming fire. What do you think would hinder the leader's joy in their service? The spiritual leaders, the elders, the pastor's joy. What hinders that? What comes to your mind? I wanted to think of biblical examples. I think of the complaints of the Israelites against God and against Moses. Even though God had provided again and again and again and again. As humans, we are prone to complaint and discontent. And their complaints tempts the meekest man who ever lived and walked on the face of the earth to sin against God through anger and disobedience. I think of the people of Israel in 1 Samuel who are dissatisfied even with God's leadership. They're pragmatists. They want something more relevant than God's kingship. And so they say, give us a king like the other nations. They reject God's leadership. They reject God himself. They're tired of having to trust by faith that God will protect them. We're a discontented people. I think of Ananias and Sapphira who are a part of that marvelous church in the first century. The one that we say we all want to be a part of and be like. They see all that's happening and they have this clever idea, hey, we'll be praised if we say we give more money than we actually did to the church. Now what's their temptation? It's pride and recognition and affirmation. They want to be seen as more spiritual than they really are willing to commit toward, to sacrifice toward. Complaining, discontentment, and pride are all factors, are all dangers that we're still to avoid. Now what causes spiritual leaders, your pastors, joy in their service? 
It is joy for your pastors to see you love the truth and seeking to walk in it. Third John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It is a joy for your elders to hear how you are growing, how you are sharing your faith, how you are serving one another. You are taking initiative in that way without prompting to hear how you are discipling your children, to hear how you are gathering to study his word in smaller groups, again, on your own initiative, to hear how you love to know God's word better, how you want to talk about what you are learning, about him in particular. Your theology is expanding and growing. You love to worship with other believers. Your leaders love to hear how you are investing in the gospel's advance. Now, I'm not intending to just pat you on the back, but a passage like this that is difficult to preach is actually a joy to preach when the body is obeying it well. And, and I just want to say to you, you're obeying this well. I'm encouraged by you. And I wanted to share a few of the ways that I'm encouraged. Even just this week, I, I was able to list out several things that I heard from the congregation in bits and pieces throughout the week. One shared with me how encouraged a visitor was just by how friendly and welcoming you were to them. Their explanation to our member was, of all the churches we visited, this was the friendliest. Another shared by email just how much God is teaching her in how to study God's word and hear it preached. There's a group of almost 50 members that I email at the beginning of the week that are committed to praying for the preaching of God's word every week. And they pray for me specifically or the speaker speaking on how we're preparing. That's an incredible, incredible encouragement. Another shared by email just how much God is doing in teaching them in their personal study. They're learning more and more as they learn to dig deeper into God's word and they're eager to share that with somebody else. Others shared with me areas where we might improve on an aspect of the church's ministry. And the way we were discussing it was not complaint, like this is terrible, or this is a weakness, or how can we see this continue to grow? We're seeing life, how can it continue to grow? How can we invest in its growth? I meet with a group of of guys every Saturday or almost every Saturday and we're reading through a book on doctrine seeking to grow and discuss and challenge each other. That's a great encouragement to me. There are more and it's not uncommon to hear from several of you each week. God is at work among us as you seek to follow your leaders, as you seek to follow their example, but as you do the work This isn't a sense of, I want us to be really clear about this. This has stood out to me so much in our study of church leadership. It's so different than the world's view. All the ways we think of bad authority being exercised, that's not what the scriptures are teaching. It's not somebody exercising power or influence for their own sake. Usually the leader is the first one to come and the last one to leave. If he's following the Bible's pattern, if he's following the master, his his mode of operation was service. The greatest servant of all. That's who we're supposed to look like. So it's actually more advantageous to you to have a godly leader who serves like that. That's who you want before you leading. 
And I'd encourage you to continue to encourage your leaders, those who exercise any sort of influence in your life here in the church family, your Sunday school teachers, life group leaders, your fellow members, by sharing how God is at work in you and in their service to you. So we've looked first at the leaders who lead. Secondly, I want you to see the congregations that follow. Authority in the church is challenging for us, not just because by nature we don't tend to trust or want to submit to authorities, but because our leaders are fallible. The Bible recognizes that. They're still sinners. In Acts 20, verse 30, Paul warns that there are some who carry the name of elder, those who will rise up from among you, who will try to lead disciples away after themselves. They'll be in it for themselves. That will characterize some leaders in the church. I think you probably have examples that may come to your mind. I do. In 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, Paul gives a whole set of instructions for how to deal with an elder who's fallen into sin. There's greater accountability for him because he's a leader, because authority is influence. Finally, in 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, Peter reveals the temptations that leaders will be inclined toward and warns against them. Notice he puts that out in front of the entire congregation. It's recorded for us to look at for all time. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, watching over them, not because you must. You shouldn't be forced into this kind of service. He continues, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain. He's saying that may be a temptation, but eager to serve. Lastly, he says, not lording it over those entrusted to you. There is a temptation, whether we're leading in the home, at work, or at church, to take our authority and misuse it. But he says, being examples to the flock. So these texts do not give us an excuse, though, to ignore, belittle, or rebel against spiritual leaders. They do help us understand there's a framework. There's a limit to their leadership. It shows us, this text shows us what every congregation, both leaders and followers, should be aspiring to be. What should congregations that follow be characterized by? We see it there in the first part of the verse, obedience and submission. There are two commands here right away at the beginning, obey and submit. The first command is the softer of the two, actually. Obey is a very broad word in the Greek. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament with the meaning to be persuaded by, to trust or rely on. It's translated as obey because it's what you do when you trust your leader. You follow because you are persuaded. You listen to the elders and are willingly following. This first word obey encourages a good relationship of trust, while still commanding the church body to be swayed by the leaders, be easily swayed by them, we could say. The second word submit is a more narrow word. It means to yield, to comply with. We want to get even more clarity on what it means to obey and submit to the spiritual leadership in the church. So in what areas are we to obey and submit? Does this mean in everything, in every aspect of our life? A church leader has the right to tell you what to do? I don't think we could say that. To what extent should I obey and submit? 
Well, this certainly does not mean that the pastors of the church have a right to give you commands in every area of life. And I think when we think through some of those cases that we heard about in the past or experienced, that's sometimes what pastors try to do. They overstep the bounds of their authority. They think they have a right to tell you what to do in almost every area of life. But the context of the passage demonstrates that they are to lead within the context of the church. In areas that regard your spiritual well-being. The focus of verse 17 shows us that obedience and submission to our church leaders then applies to our spiritual lives. Notice verse 7 emphasizes their teaching of the word. So what we'd say is that their authority is a declarative authority. Where the word of God speaks, they should speak. Do you see why these men must be men of this book? Why they must be apt to teach? That's the main tool through which they lead. Their authority is not their own. Their authority doesn't come from personality or title or gifting. It's a derived authority. Everyone in the church, leader and member alike, stands under the word of God. They stand under the word and accountable to the word. Let's think through that carefully. God's word addresses many areas of our lives. An elder has responsibility to speak into believers' lives where he sees spiritual immaturity or spiritual danger. His primary means of influence must be persuasion from the scripture. If there's a need in a believer's life individually or in the church corporately, he should speak persuasively from God's word. What you're looking for when you're struggling and you need counsel, you should be going to those men who you know will tell you what God's word says. They're men who are well studied in the word and when you go to them, you know that's the kind of answer you're going to get. An example, if someone comes to a spiritual leader, an elder, asking for help with their marriage, you should expect that an elder will open the scriptures with them and show them what God says about marriage. Now, he will apply the Bible carefully and thoughtfully and will even identify where he's making an application. It's one thing to say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's another to say, therefore, you must go on a date with your wife once a week. Well, that's not authoritative. Maybe that's wise in a particular case, but that's not Bible. And we need to be clear where wisdom is given, counsel is given, and where the scripture speaks. Sometimes we mix that up. We confuse that. We want to hear application as application. Author Jonathan Lehman writes in his new book on authority, an elder's authority then is not coercive, but declarative. His authority centers entirely on the Bible and can only go where the Bible goes. Now hear that carefully. The Bible speaks about a lot of different things. About parenting, about what we invest in, whether treasures on earth or treasures in heaven. You may have a conversation with your pastor about, am I setting my priorities right? But again, that's maybe wisdom Versus a strict application, it's an application rather than a strict or clear literal statement from the word. Lehman concludes, an elder with no Bible is an elder with no authority. 
You need to hear that very carefully and have that clear in your minds. We'll talk about that more as we go forward. But an elder with no Bible is an elder with no authority. Second, we see imitation. A primary way the elders lead is by their example. Look again at verse 7. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way, their pattern of life. And imitate their faith. Now this verse has a backward glance in mind. It commands us to think back. Examine the words and lives of those who taught us the truth. What did they tell you from God's word that helped you grow? How did they live before you? How can you follow that same path in your own life? At the end of May, my family had the opportunity to practice this verse. Jenny's grandfather had passed away. And it was a great joy to hear testimony of how the Lord had used him to preach to thousands over the years. To evangelize so many. To mentor and disciple younger men for pastoral ministry. And to live faithfully as a husband and father. His whole life in that service was on display. And it was both encouraging and convicting. To hear how someone could live a life fully committed to Christ. Certainly, he wasn't a perfect man. And that was made clear. This is a man who leaned on Christ and his word. But that was the result. The result that came from that was a man who lived a life of great value. I think of other godly believers who have passed on recently. Other pastors. I remember the way the Lord has used them in my life. It encourages me and inspires me to seek to follow that same path. This is also the immense the immense and often neglected benefit of reading Christian biography. You see, God intends for us to follow godly examples. Don't underestimate the power of a godly example. The example that you are supposed to have. The example of godly men that you're supposed to look toward. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So we should not underestimate the influence we can have for those who are watching us. That's why scripture tells us the older are to teach the younger in Titus 2. It's why in Psalm 78, the generations to come are to hear from those who have gone before of God's mighty deeds and powerful words. We're to give testimony. We've seen that work itself out. The point this passage is making for us is we need godly influences in our lives to look up to, to learn from, and to imitate. And God weaves those examples into the life of the body. This is so important for your spiritual growth that God wants you to see spiritual examples week after week after week. Consider just how sobering it is that we wield an influence like this. Can you see why the qualifications for the role of elder is not focused on their skill set, but on their character? This is one of the reasons why. This is also why there's a plurality. You get to see men with different gifts in different situations in life. As we add lay elders, you get to see men who are in the world working who are doing different jobs 
and watching how they interact with unbelievers and manage their priorities. They model what it looks like to be a godly parent. They model what it looks like to be a loving and self-sacrificing husband. They're to be an example of what it means to walk with God in humility, repenting of sin when they see it in their lives, and trusting God through every stage, through every phase of life. You see, the beauty of God's design for the church is that you don't have to have a title to be a godly role model. And every believer can be a positive influence on others as they seek to walk with God and encourage other believers to do so by their speech and by their conduct. We're told that in Ephesians 4. We're all supposed to be practicing this. But what we see is elders lead the way. Lastly, prayer. Do you notice how the author recognizes that this is going to be challenging? He says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That means it's possible for your pastors to groan in this work, to sigh, to be exasperated, to be frustrated, to be tired, to be worn out with the emotional investment. And it's possible for you to struggle to submit to fallible, imperfect leaders The leaders are to be alert, chasing away sleep for the sake of the flock. They're to keep in mind that they don't do this for man's approval, but before our Lord who will call them into account. If they have a sensitive conscience before God, this, this will motivate them. This pastoring, eldering work can be either joyful or groan-inducing. So what is our hope? It's the next verse. It's verse 18 of chapter 13. The author writes, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So they've been faithful, but they say, pray for us that we would continue to be faithful. God calls us to pray for one another. The congregation is to trust their spiritual leaders and submit, and this isn't our natural tendency. We're called sheep for a reason. Sheep have a mind of their own. They tend to wander in their own direction. Shepherding is a job that demands vigilance and love for the sheep that sometimes are not easy to lead. And elders know this well because they're not only spiritual leaders, they're also sheep too. As we saw in last week's passage in Jeremiah 17, we're not ultimately putting our trust in man. We're following godly examples where they're godly. And we're exercising grace toward one another, leader and member, where we need to. We bear with one another. We forgive. We love. This text teaches us that God intends to glorify himself through leaders and congregations who help each other follow Christ. This is a serving ministry that we're offering to one another. The fact that leaders are fallible in the church is not a reason to refuse to follow. And I'm not saying that they're openly sinning. I'm saying that you recognize they're human. But it's part of the very reason why we should follow. Just think about this for a moment. If this were natural or easy for us and did not require our dependence on the chief shepherd, who gets the glory for a church functioning well? It's us, isn't it? If we can do this in our own strength, whose credit does that go toward? It's us, isn't it? But when we recognize what's really at stake, 
God is intending to glorify himself. God intends for us together to recognize that we need him to obey a passage like this. We cannot do this in our own strength. And that humble confession is the first step in receiving his grace. We obey not because it's easy, but we trust him. We want to glorify him above all. Leaders will frustrate and congregations will make their pastors groan. But that should lead us back to him. Each of us are in the process of being made more like him. Therefore, we exercise patience with each other and pray for one another. We read this verse earlier in our service. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's our goal, leaders and members alike. By his wounds you have been healed. For you, because you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So that's our hope, isn't it? That's the true leader of the church. That's to whom we all look. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The church family is his. He's the perfect leader. He's the perfect guide. We stand under his authority, all of us. And in his wisdom, he is designed for there to be human, fallible, yet spiritual leaders. We glorify and honor him as we follow his design for the church to the best of our ability in dependence on his grace. So this passage shows us that we need leaders, even imperfect ones, to be pursuing their God-given responsibilities by his grace. And we need a flock that is willingly following godly leaders. And think of it, when these two truths work together, it is beautiful and it honors the Lord. And it's a church that stands out as different than what we hear so often about churches. And we've experienced that here at Subaru Road. I can say that with great confidence. I've seen a lot of different churches in my years of ministry, in traveling, in visiting different churches, as a pastor talking to other pastors. We've experienced this well. And though there's certainly ups and downs, there have been sleepless nights. I don't think I'm afraid to admit that to you. This church family is a joy to lead because you're willing to follow. When you hear God's word, you say, if that's what it says, that's what we'll do. That's not easy, and that doesn't characterize every congregation. So praise God for that. We understand his word is the authority in the room. May we continue to believe that more and more. So my prayer for us as a body is that as we expand our authority structure, you will continue to follow and support and encourage and love your leaders. And your leaders will continue to serve and sacrifice and love you for his glory. Not just for what you want, not for what we think we should create, but for his glory. May we seek his help to do so. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your instruction. We're thankful for how you have prepared for us wisdom to apply to our structure as a church family. You knew the era that we would live in 
An era that diminishes, demeans, tears down all authorities, that exalts the individual, that seeks to be a self-centered authority to itself. Lord, Satan has been using this ploy since the very beginning. And it's an effective strategy today. And yet, Lord, we want to believe and trust that you know exactly what you're doing. You have designed for your church through the ages, no matter what the cultural influences are, to function in this way. So we don't want to be persuaded by the cultural mood of the moment. We want to hear your word and obey it to the best of our ability. And yet, even as we pray that, we recognize that we need your grace. We need the strength that only you can supply to obey you. Lord, help us as sheep to obey and submit. Help us as leaders to lead with humility and grace and servanthood and sacrifice. Lord, keep before us always that King Jesus is the Lord of this church. And may we seek to honor him above all things. In Jesus' name, amen.